We're in Romans chapter 14 this morning in the first six verses. The sermon's called, Do Not Quarrel Over Opinions. Could be called another title. Pastor spent a lot of time thinking about, the, what are we going to name this? What are we going to call it? There's so many things you could call it. I want to call it Christian freedom. Christian freedom is a topic that has been important to Reformed and Protestant Christians since the Reformation. You have treatises by people like Martin Luther and others on Christian freedom and understanding what that means. But even as I come to preach on the text on Christian freedom, I want to say that I want you to hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. Um, that, that, you know, we love the Scripture and believe that the Scripture is God's Word uh, in every word, and that it is inspired, uh, that it is without error, that here is the final authority for everything concerning faith and life, and there's so much in it that Christians throughout time and across, even now across Chattanooga, they believe all the core same things about Christ and the gospel and what it means to know Him and love Him and to walk with Him. So much is clear, so much that we share, but the reality also is there are a lot of things that aren't clear. There are a lot, there are a lot of things in life that the Bible does not spell out for us as a community, and so we have to use wisdom and make uh, choices. And so let us read then from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 6, where Paul says that as for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another, on Christ's servants? It is before his or her own master, that he or she, that we will stand or fall. And he, she, we, brothers and sisters, we will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make us stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, and the one who observes the day should observe it in honor of the Lord, the one who Eat should eat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains should abstain in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true and is a faithful guide to what we should believe and how we should live. We thank you that even this is in here to acknowledge those places where Christian wisdom and charity are so necessary. Father, would you speak this word to us this morning, both of freedom, but also of peace and purity and kindness and love for one another in the places where we may not agree on everything. Have mercy on your church, for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if, you, if you've never heard the word before, I was going to teach you a new word this morning. It's the first word. If you've got the outline in your bulletin there in the first point, adiaphora, which literally means things that don't matter, things that are disputable, but they're not central. They don't matter in the sense that they're not the core around which we build the church. They're secondary things that don't have the same Wait, and so some people would actually, they're like, instead of just saying adiaphora, which is things that don't matter, 
prefer to say disputable matters, because to many of us, these, some of these things do matter. But they're just still disputable. There's still things that the Bible hasn't spoken so clearly on that we don't land in different places on them. Now, the Bible speaks clearly on so many things, as I was saying. You know, it forbids stealing. Very clear. So we preach, don't steal. There are things that are clearly commanded. Like, do not steal. And this command I give to you, love one another. Right? Things so clear in the Scripture that we preach and teach very clearly. But there's a great deal that's not clear. And there are matters of Christian wisdom and freedom which is what Paul is arguing for in this passage, is freedom to disagree. Some of you might eat, some of you may not, but don't argue about it. Don't judge each other. Welcome each other as God is welcomed. There's personal conviction on some of these things. So there's so many examples because the reality is so much in the life of the church is culture. It's interesting as we argue about culture wars and if the church stops doing something and start doing something else, they say, oh, you're compromising with the culture. Sometimes, and we need to be careful, what is the true line where we're compromising something biblical with the culture and how much of it is church culture simply changes? Like what, Robert? Like this pulpit, right? Pulpits. Should the church have a pulpit? Some people are absolutely adamant the church should have a pulpit, but I've studied the scripture a fair amount. I'm, I don't remember even hearing about a pulpit in there anywhere. Right? I'm in the synagogue. I think they sat, and then one of them stood up to read, and then they sat and taught, and it was different. And in the Reformation, some of the things that they did, they were really clear. They believed that you should have a pulpit that should be elevated. I don't mean just on the stage up here, like so you could see me, but no, they, were, they literally were mounted on the wall. They were so far off the ground, you needed a spiral staircase to get up to the pulpit. And the pulpit, and so the, the minister would go up there, and there's still churches that want to elevate the pulpit above any, anything else. There, there, and there are people who just have little wooden pulpits like this. So there are some that have now these days, you can see these plastic, clear, acrylic kind of pulpit. It's just it's acrylic and see-through, and it's just you know the size almost of a music stand that you could put a Bible on. Some people don't have a bullet. Sometimes I see a pulpit. I sometimes see a pastor just, you know, folding it back and walking around and preaching from his, and he doesn't even have a pulpit. Who's right? There are good reasons to prefer each of those. There are good reasons to prefer the elevated pulpit. The, the, the reason they did that during the Reformation, and a lot of Reformed churches did have it, was, uh, and, and why some still do it now, is tradition, because historically in a lot of Reformed churches, they did elevate the pulpit. But they elevated it with symbolism. So much in, in churches was symbolic in the way the church was built, the way the church was laid out. And so, they, it, was not so it was not to elevate the preacher. It was to elevate God's Word and to say that, is that, that we all sit under God's Word and under the teaching of His Word and we live our lives in obedience to and under His Word. And so to elevate that, to symbolically say that, they, they put the pulpit up and over so that the Word of God came out on His people and was elevated over us. But those who like the plastic, clear acrylic ones, the reason they do that is because when you step away from behind something and you're able to get with your people, there's sometimes a more of an immediacy. There's more of a connection. There's nothing between me and you. And so when we talk, there, there, there's a different kind of uh, impact. Uh, there's a different kind of advantage to stepping away from barriers. Which one is true? Is, is the authority and impact of God's worth uh, 
by symbolism more important than the immediacy and connection of God's word with his people as it's preached, which is, which is right. It's obvious as I'm saying it, right, that none of these things are in the Bible, right? We all, there are good reasons for them. There are to wisdom, Christian wisdom and Christian freedom. There are so many things we may choose to do, but, there's, but biblically there's not a right and wrong. It's just church tradition in the ways that we have chosen to do it at different times and places. We can have a friendly debate about it. But in the end, it's not something that we should judge other churches for. They got a pulpit that's like this, or he's got a pulpit like that. They don't even have a pulpit over there. Can you believe it? What kind of church is that? Can you call yourself a church and not have a pulpit? I've had people say that about pews. Does it? Yeah, now it's not so funny, right? <laughs> but I mean, there is that. It doesn't feel like a church. If you don't have the pews, or not stationary. You know, you got these chairs in here, right? It doesn't feel like a church. It's not like a church. I had a friend that I took to church one time. It was interesting because he's not a churchgoer, not really a believer. He went to church with me one time. It was a church like this, and he sat like this. And when I asked him what he thought, I thought the sermon was, you know, something. I thought, you know, all this stuff. And I asked him what he thought, and he said, I don't know, it didn't feel like a church, and then it had just chairs in there. It felt like you could just move them around. <laughs> like, that's what you got out of it? That's... Do you know that there were no pews in churches until the 1500s? That the rooms were empty and people stood? How'd you like that? That's historical, and that's tradition. We want to get back to early church. But does sitting where you sit or how you sit matter? Does it need to be a permanent wooden pew? Frankly, I kind of like a soft cushion. But which is right? Which is wrong? Same thing about music. So much fighting over music. What does the Bible say? What is actually in there? Are the hymns we sing in there? People will almost die for a particular song. You know, or if you didn't sing it. You know, there are certain songs, but these songs are actually the history of all of it. Johnny Come Lately's. You know, they're, 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 a lot of them is relatively new. Or, you know, what are the instruments? What's the biblical instrument? You know, there are churches that don't use instrumentation when they sing because in the New Testament there are no instruments. They're never mentioned in the entire New Testament. So some churches don't use them. They're not there. But if you go in the Old Testament, what do you got? Trumpets and cymbals and, and, and tambourines and sitars, which are like early simple guitars. What you won't find is an organ or a piano, which are Johnny Come Lately's. But what is the right? Some are almost like this is God's instrument. You know, and that, you know, the drum, that's what, my, what you know, you're with me now, right? Barry Cooper says that by recognizing that certain things are in themselves adiaphora, they're actually things that don't matter. We avoid quarreling or giving offense over mere opinions, squabbling about matters which ultimately we don't have to agree on because they're not necessary for salvation. They're not at the core of the things that are important for the essence of the church. Paul devotes a a disproportionate amount of space here to instructing Christians on how to get along 
concerning adiaphora and disputable matters. If you look back at, we just did chapter 12 and 13 over the last number of months, and you can go back. He spent seven verses on this or two verses on Christian worldview, you know, 12, one and two, you know, seven verses on this, six verses about loving each other, you know, five verses here. And then when he gets to this, don't quarrel (laughs) and live together in unity. Stop judging each other. He spends a chapter and a half disproportionate amount. Why? Because Christian unity is one of the key. Jesus prays for it, that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And there are disputable matters that should not divide us, which we shouldn't quarrel over, and we shouldn't judge each other on. The issue of freedom. So, who are the weak in here? So, verses 14, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But don't quarrel over opinions. So who and why are the weak? Who are the weak and why are they considered weak? So the weak are, the way I understand it here, those whose consciences are bound by things that God does not require. They have to have them. But God really doesn't care. Right? The... the, The weak are those whose consciences are bound. They believe God requires things that he doesn't actually require. Pews, pulpits. (laughs) You know, and we're going to get messier as it goes on. The weak are those in this passage that only eat vegetables, right? In verse 2 it says, one person believes he can eat anything. Happy day. But the weak person eats only vegetables, In verse 5, he says, some, some people think all days are the same. Others feel bound to certain days. In verse 21, he expands it out. We're not going to get there for a couple of weeks, but in 21, he expands it out as he's summarizing some of these things. In verse 21, he says, it's good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. But he puts it back in that category where you can eat or drink wine. Or not. But you shouldn't quarrel about it and judge each other about it. John Piper says, To the the weak, avoid meat and wine, and the strong are free to eat and drink anything. And that's John Piper. Very conservative on these things. The strong conscience understands that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with good food or good wine. They understand that there's nothing inherently Christian about a pulpit, biblically, or about a pew, other than that tradition, we used to sit on wooden benches instead of soft chairs. 1 Corinthians 10.25, Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord, eat anything you want. Don't worry about what you buy in the market. Why would they worry about what they buy in the market? Because a lot of the meat that sold in the market had been offered as a sacrifice on a pagan altar. And so the meat had been used in a pagan ceremony, offered to a pagan god, and then it was taken and put in the market to be sold. And Christians were concerned, can I eat that meat? It's been offered to the devil, or, you know, it's been offered in some situation that I don't want to be a part of or be a situation of. So, 
can I eat this meat? And so there was concern. Paul says basically there's no question of conscience when it gets meat is meat, all meat is God's meat, and you're free to eat the meat. Eat the meat. Now let's be clear. These people are not weak because they don't eat meat. And these people are not weak because they don't drink freely. The weakness is in the motive. Why they don't eat or drink. Right? It's in the motive because they think God requires it. They don't eat meat because they're not free to eat meat. They don't want to eat meat because they think it will offend God and that God doesn't want it. They, they think they're serving and honoring God by not eating meat because it is something that he is requiring of them. John Piper says, the conviction that there is something about meat and wine that makes abstinence more honoring to God than drinking was a mistake. They want to honor God. These people, they all want to honor God. Everybody in the passage here wants to honor God. They're all brothers and sisters in the church, and they're all trying to honor God. There are just some who are mistaken on how that's accomplished. Something is accomplished by eating and drinking. And Paul says, do it to the honor and glory of God. Some think that they shouldn't do that, and so to honor and glorify God, they don't. It's in the motive. But we know that people who do not eat meat are not weak, necessarily. It can be a personal choice. I know people that don't eat meat. They only eat vegetables. But not because they think that God will only allow them to eat vegetables. They just think for health reasons and for other reasons, they've made the choice to eat vegetables. That's fine. What's Paul's point here? He doesn't care. Eat vegetables if you only want to eat vegetables. (laughs) Eat the meat if you want to eat the meat. But understand what the Lord is actually requiring. And so in Galatians, we have the example where Paul says in Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation in Christ. So there comes a point here in the New Testament where the sign and seal of the righteousness of faith has ceased from being circumcision and has been changed to baptism, in my humble opinion. That Then circumcision, he says, is a matter of indifference. Neither circumcision or uncircumcision. So, you know, if you want to get circumcised, go ahead. He doesn't care. It's not like now we're in the New Testament. No more. Stop it. Right? He's like, now it doesn't matter. Either way you want to go is fine. And it's shown because in Galatians, Titus is forbidden to be circumcised. Because in Galatians, the issue is the, is the gospel. And Titus was thinking about being circumcised because there were Judaizers and those who were saying, you've got to believe in Jesus and be circumcised if you want to be saved. And he's saying, if you get circumcised in that context, you are voiding the gospel. Because you're putting your trust and your hope in something other than Jesus, right? Salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, and circumcision will not help you a whit. It won't hurt you a whit. It's not part of the equation. It's neither, as he says, there's freedom. But in Acts, Paul asks Timothy to get circumcised. 
because the context is entirely different. He's trying to identify with the crowds, like a missionary going to a place, and he might do his hair different or wear clothing differently, or they might adopt their diet differently. Why? To live in the community, identify with the people, and advance opportunities for the gospel. And so where it advances opportunities for the true gospel, he says, get circumcised. Where it instructs the meaning of the true gospel, he says, don't you dare. I know people who choose freely not to drink for good reasons. Some I know that just don't like it. You know, others for health reasons. There are other reasons why people might choose not to do it. But they don't think that God is more pleased with them because they don't do it. Right? They're not more righteous. They're not holier. See, I don't do this thing. But doing things God doesn't require doesn't make you holier. Right? Or more righteous. Piper says this, God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. Piper doesn't drink, and he's got a lot of good reasons that he'll tell you why you shouldn't, or not, well, you shouldn't, and why he doesn't, and you might consider. But he also says this, that there is a freedom here that you have to be very careful. He says God hates legalism as much as he hates alcoholism. And you might say, I don't do it because it can cause problems. There are a lot of things that can cause problems that God has allowed freedom in. God hates legalism every bit as much as he hates alcoholism. In fact, I would say he probably hates legalism more because legalism leads to pride. It leads to senses of self-righteousness, of judging others exactly what he says don't do. And it can cause division in the church, which it will do if you think you're right. These people are sinners. Or, you know, they need to stop. And we start to divide over things that God says don't. There's no extra credit with God if we make up rules and then obey them. I mean, it's funny, but the church has been doing it for a long time. Making up rules, and then obeying them, and feeling really good about it. You're not righteous. In fact, you're in danger of being Pharisees. Didn't in exactly what the Pharisees did. They required things of themselves and others, things that God didn't actually say. Right? Isn't, that, isn't that like their core problem is they added to the law and they, you know, they had a core idea and it's like they just started putting rules on that. Like, we'll do that. God wants our best. What does that mean? Wear a suit. Does it, though? Right? We just start adding rules. Well, it means you've got to wear a really nice watch, too. <laughs> he wants my best. When I'm in church, it should be a Rolex. Right? This is the way the church can go. We just start making rules. Like, we start saying, well, this is what that means. And we start layering rules on things. This is the era of fundamentalism of the last generation. Women were not allowed to wear pants. There was no drinking, no dancing, no smoking, no card playing. I knew one of my college students when I was working with her, she said, I have a skirt hanging in my car because I went to one of those churches where you had to wear a skirt. And if I was going somewhere and I had to run into the drugstore or something, I had to stop, put my skirt on before I went anywhere in public. So that, that was the rule. And if you kept these rules, you were good Christians and you could look down on and judge everybody else. My wife went to a school where she had to sign a pledge that she would not play cards. No card playing, not even go fish. <laughs> because the images on the cards have been sacrificed to idols and like the meat in the market, you shouldn't eat it. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Paul says, As to the eating of food offered to 
idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Paul's point is not that you should eat everything or just vegetables. Paul's point is God doesn't care. Just do it for the right reasons. Right? The context here is interesting. Who are these not only vegetable eaters anyway? Right? And there's not clear. I read a bunch of people on it, and there's some of them like, we just don't know who they are. I have a t- there are two different options I think of, right? So these guys who are the weak because they only eat vegetables. One, it could be those who refuse to buy meat in the market because they're afraid to, to violate their conscience that God doesn't want them to eat that meat. And so they only eat vegetables. So it could be those folks because it's addressed elsewhere in the New Testament. It's also possible that these guys are the first to champion the Daniel diet. You heard of the Daniel diet? So Daniel, when he went to Babylon, he said, you know, you can have all this rich food. And he said, no, I'm just going to eat vegetables. And so Daniel diet's a thing, right? Um, they only eat, eat vegetables. It's popular to turn to the Bible for weight loss. There's a Genesis diet. There's a Daniel diet. Recently, the Daniel diet, the Daniel fast, which is three weeks, which is initially what David did, is a thing because I know because Chris Pratt just did it and tweeted about it. There are books that you can find if you Google them on God's original diet, the Bible diet, the Bible diet, the Bible diet, God's way to ultimate health, right? It's God's way. So I want to know that way. There's actually a book called What Would Jesus Eat? (laughs) I can't make this stuff up. Do we know what Jesus might eat? See, the Bible doesn't tell us about Jesus' lifestyle. I I believe it doesn't describe his physically, and it doesn't describe his lifestyle choices or any of that. It it just leaves all that out. Why? Because you'd be tempted to imitate it instead of imitating the things you should be imitating, which is his character, his moral character, to follow Christ, to be like Christ. His love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, it's humility, it's all those things, right? But we would get caught up on what? Which shoe to put on first? It's funny, but actually in the Muslim community, it's a thing because there's enough written about Muhammad's life that in the Hadith and some of the commentary, it says basically like... You should put on the right shoe first because this is the way Muhammad did it, the prophet did it. And the more you know about how he did it, the more you would do it. But why don't we know what Jesus ate? He doesn't want us to know. We know he ate fish and loaves, but I eat a lot of fish. I really do. But anyway, (laughs) not because I have to, because I want to. So Mark 7, Jesus says this, you all, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters into his heart and into his stomach and is expelled? And then by this he declared, all foods are clean. Is there a Bible diet? Verse 5, when he talks about are there special days Some think all days are alike, and some will esteem one day better than another. And I want to say this. There's a whole sermon right here. And so I'm just going to say this. I believe that there is a Lord's Day, that this day is set apart. And I believe that the New Testament teaches it, and I believe it has its roots in the Old Testament Sabbath and the New Testament in, in, on the Lord's Day. And I, do, I don't think he's saying here there are, there's no day of, of worship for Christians per se. But what I do think is that coming from the Old Testament to the New Testament, many in the church are even coming from the pagan religions and coming to Christ, that there are a lot of festivals, Read the Old Testament, there are all kinds of festivals. Festival of booze, you know, Yom Kippur, a lot of things that they celebrated. And coming into the New Testament, he is saying, 
we don't have to follow that Jewish calendar of festivals anymore. Where does that fit for us? Things like Christians don't have to keep the Old Testament festivals, but we also don't have to follow the Christian calendar if we don't want to. There is a Christian calendar, and a lot of churches follow it, and there's nothing wrong with it. More power to you. So we do a little bit of Advent here. We do celebrate sort of an Advent season, but we don't really do Lent here. We don't do Pentecost Sunday or Whit Sunday. We don't do Ash Wednesday. All these things are part of a church calendar. There's, so we have the same kind of thing. There is in the church those who feel like you should follow the church calendar, but you just know we made that up, right? What about Christmas and Easter? There are Christians that don't celebrate Christmas and Easter simply because they're not in the Bible. And it's just a matter of custom. <laughs> Who's mad at me now? It's just true. It's just true. I think it's a good thing. We do it. We celebrate a whole Advent season to Christian. You know, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ every Sunday, so to speak, you know, and his birth and his ministry, his life and his death. The gospel is the center of our worship all the time. You know, and I think it's fine to set aside those times, but I, you just need to understand that they're, it's, it's, what about Halloween? I've been in small groups where we kind of harangued about that, you know, do you do Halloween? And then some families adamantly, absolutely not. You know the pagan roots of that in, in England, bonfires and bonefires and, the, you, know, the, you know, gotcha. It was like meat sacrificed to idols one time. Right? But as it comes to us, for me, it's like playing cards. Do, do you know the roots of the pictures on the face cards of a deck of cards and therefore you shouldn't use them? But for us, it's like meat sacrificed to idols. I, I don't know the origin. I don't care about the origin. It's not why we celebrate. Is there a place? Our kids, we told them, dress nice, nothing scary, nothing bad, and get candy. <laughs> but there are others whose conscience say, no, we can't do that. And, and I would say, welcome them. And I respect and, and honor your desire to please the Lord and to not participate in anything that you think would be offensive to him. We should welcome that. We should be together in the same church. So let me just wrap this up with a few quick applications. First of all, this assumes that we're going to have different opinions, and that's normal. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? There are different opinions about a bunch of these things, and it's normal, and it's okay. And you should welcome each other and live together and be nice. Right? And you don't have to split. You don't have to go to another church. You don't have to argue. You, know, you don't have to. Why? It's an ever-assumed present reality. We'll not agree on everything. Differences are normal. God is calling us in this to learn humility. He's teaching us to share, to share the church. Not everything here is the way I want it. It's true. And I'm sure it's not the way you want it. Not everything. But we share it, don't we? It's the way somebody else wants it. I don't like that song, but this half of the room likes that song. Can we share and sometimes sing that song? And not quarrel about it. Freedom is a Christian way of life, right? When the Bible is clear and dogmatic, by all means, let us be clear and dogmatic. And where the scripture is not quite so dogmatic, then we need to lighten up and not be so dogmatic ourselves. Do not quarrel, he says. Do not despise the weak in verse 3, right? Do not despise the weak. What does that mean? I mean, because these are our temptations, isn't it? He says, don't despise the weak. Strong people don't despise the weak. Weak people don't judge the strong. Right? That's what he says in verse 3, how we're to handle it. Right? And those are our temptations, isn't it? If you're strong, it's to look down on people who aren't as free as you are. Or if you feel like there is something that should constrain our consciences and other people aren't constrained, that we judge them. 
we shouldn't. Galatians 5.13 says, Brothers and sisters, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity of the flesh to judge people or to look down on people, right? Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin or to go further into areas where you shouldn't go, but rather to serve one another in love. Your freedom is a freedom to love and to serve in the life of the community. Also, the strong should not be controlled by the conscience of the weak. Strong must be considerate. We're going to get to that in the weeks ahead. They must be considerate. They must act in love. But it doesn't mean they need to be bound by their conscience. We need to be careful and generous and gracious in the way that we exercise our freedom. But in Galatians 5, Paul says, It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now he's talking here about circumcision, but it's, it's an example of a lot of the things we're talking about as he brings it up here. Or Colossians 2.16, where it's specifically these questions, he says, Colossians 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Eat and drink what you want. <laughs> and let no one judge you, whichever side you fall on. Stronger siblings should not be forced to live according to a weaker brother's bound conscience. And weaker brothers should never, ever feel the pressure to violate their consciences where they feel constrained by Scripture. They should be welcomed and respected and honored in their attempts to please God. But we should be convinced, verse 5, in our own minds. This means that you need to study the Scripture for yourself. You need to conform your conscience and your life to the Scripture as you understand it. And as your community and as you come to know and, and love, all of us is responsible to search these matters out, to think for ourselves. And we all have to live according to a biblically shaped conscience of what God requires. And he does require. You just need to draw the lines in the right places. And so our motive and purpose in all these things should be governed by our desire to honor God in everything. Right? That's verse 6. That's how he wraps it up. Right? Now, whatever you do, if you observe the day, observe it to the honor of God. If you don't observe the day, do it to honor God, believing he doesn't require it. And you may use it in another way. If you eat, eat to the glory of God who's given us the earth and the fullness thereof is his and he's given it to us to enjoy. And if you don't eat, honor God in the, your own conscience, believing that he has placed restrictions on you and you're going to follow them. But whatever you do, it should come from a heart that wants to honor God according to his scripture. It's Colossians 3, 23 and 4. Whatever you do, work heartily. I would say there, do it from the heart. Whatever you do, do it from the heart. Right? As for the Lord and not for men. It doesn't matter whether people around you eat or drink. Or observe the day or don't observe the day. You do. You know, whatever you do, do it with, from your heart. Serving the Lord and not men. Knowing it's the Lord who is going to give you a reward. It's the Lord from whom you receive an inheritance. You are serving Christ. He is your master before whom you will stand or fall. And he is able to make us stand. So let's welcome one another. And tolerate each other in our differences. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your church. How we have struggled with this through the ages. 
through the centuries, through the decades, how we have fought over things that are debatable. Father, would you have mercy on us? Teach us to have a healthy debate, but a loving welcome to those with whom we disagree over non-essential and non-core things. We love each other well here, but our brothers and sisters in other churches who choose to do it a different way, cousins and uncles and others around the community and around the world, that we would give them a welcome when we all share Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.